Hello everyone, my name is Dietlen Stolle and I'm a professor in political science at McGill University. I'm also the director uh, of the Center for the Study of uh, Democratic Citizenship. Welcome to this roundtable on academic freedom. Uh, there are some very timely reasons of why this issue has come up uh, recently, more so than in the past. Uh, there's obviously the Andrew Potter affair. On a very different dimension, uh, there is the fight for the Central European University in Hungary. There have been incidents, lots of incidents, uh, of shouted down guests on U.S. campuses uh, in the U.S. Uh, many other examples, not all on the same scale, not all comparable, but they all have raised certain concerns about academic freedom. Nor is this a very recent phenomenon. Academic freedom has been an issue of controversy uh, for a very long time, as Paul Axel wrote, wrote in his op-ed, in medieval times, the Catholic Church uh, challenged uh, the freedom of speech uh, in the 19th century. Uh, we had examples, or we saw limitations on hiring decisions with regard to gender or uh, religiosity. There were times that professors were dismissed because they criticized their administration. Um, and uh, I wanted to say that uh, I have lived and worked uh, in a country and a political system where journalists were not free to speak what they wanted to say and where academics were dismissed because of what they said. So this issue is of great importance to me personally, but more importantly, it is of great relevance for all uh, of us academics. And so the Center for the Study of Democratic Citizenship, together with the research group uh, of constitu constitutional rights, organized this event today uh, to address this urgent issue of academic freedom from a variety of angles and from a variety of viewpoints, really. So we really like to take a step back. We don't like to finger point. We don't uh, uh, necessarily want to accuse anyone. We want to talk about this issue intelligently and in a deliberative way. We don't want to talk about the Potter affair per se, but we want to talk about the issue of academic freedom more generally. And this is because we as academics are always challenged and urged and encouraged right now to be more in the public spotlight, to take positions in public. But are we prepared for this? Uh, are our protections, our rules prepared for this? And so this is the question we like to ask. And we invited four professors from four different Quebec universities here. They will be introduced by our moderator. Our moderator is Leslie Seidel. Leslie Seidel, uh, I'm very happy to, to welcome Leslie here. He is from the in uh, Institute for Research and Public Policy, where he is a research director in the program Canada's Changing Federal Community. Uh, and he is a public policy consultant, and he has been in charge of the research program over there on diversity, immigration, and integration. So welcome, Leslie, who will also introduce our guests. Thank you very much. Dietlin's email uh, last week. Uh, when I received Dietlin's email last week, uh, I was slightly puzzled why she would ask me. Uh, and I thought maybe there are two things. One, even though I'm not an academic, I've spent most of my career, including in the federal government, uh, working with academics uh, at the IRPP. Almost all of our research is done out of house, and uh, the interaction occurs 
uh, between the, the research director and the, and the authors. Secondly, and uh, perhaps I'm imagining this one a bit, but I think there may be some relevance there, uh, Dietlin may have wanted a steady pair of hands in case we get into uh, slightly choppy waters. Um, so I I'm happy to, uh, to moderate this today. The, um, the event will uh, um, proceed as follows. We have uh, four panelists, and they're going to respond to uh, a couple of questions that were uh, uh, prepared ahead of time. Then um, I will uh, discuss with them, um, asking some additional questions, and we'll just see how that unfolds. And then, um, ideally, by the by the remaining half hour, in other words, by four o'clock, we'll have um, exchange with uh, the audience. So what I'm going to do now is just very briefly introduce the four uh, uh, panelists, and then they will speak in turn to uh, the questions that they've been asked, which I'll read before they start responding. So our first panelist is Marc-André Baudet, who's uh, an assistant professor at uh, the Political Science Department of Laval, but his, uh, there's, there's sort of um, webs within webs uh, here. His uh, PhD is from McGill, and uh, he did uh, an MSc in Sciences Economiques at the University de Montréal. Uh, next will be uh, Alison Harrell, and she is from UCAM, where she holds the chair in Psychologie Politique de la Solidarité Sociale, Political Psychology of Social Solidarity. I think that's pretty close. And um, Alison has um, an interesting uh, background. Uh, she comes to us from uh, Minnesota originally. And uh, as I said to her earlier, I think uh, you're an example, as I am, of the uh, drawing power of Montreal and its universities and its lifestyle. Uh, following uh, Allison, we'll hear from uh, Jacob Levy. Levy? Levy? Levy. Levy, who is the Tomlinson Professor of Political Theory in the Political Science Department here at McGill. Uh, and is an associate member of the Department of Philosophy. He has a PhD from Princeton and LLM from the University of Chicago Law School. And then finally, Eric Montpetit, who's a full professor at the University of Montréal in the Political Science Department and is one of the uh, uh, leading and uh, most clear-sighted uh, scholars of public policy in, in the country. So uh, I think you'd agree with me that this is a very um, well-qualified panel to uh, address these questions from different perspectives. So the questions that Dietlin sent to the panelists ahead of time are the following. Is academic freedom absolute? Is it an equivalent of freedom of speech? And each of the panelists has about five minutes. Uh, those of you who don't know me, I do tend to read a watch fairly carefully. So um, off you go, Marc-André. Thank you very much. Um, my position is uh, probably not as popular as uh, what others would say, but I would say that actually academic, academic freedom is not absolute in, uh, in our society in practice. Well, first of all, as a graduate student, uh, their choice of training or topics are constrained by uh, things that are in demand in the market. And then when finally you manage to get a position, you have to sell yourself uh, using certain uh, topics instead of others. For research money, for grants, for publication, then again, you not necessarily work on what you want. 
Then there are the professional norms in our communities about what kind of work can be done, what kind of methods can be used. That's also constrain our, our, our freedom. And then our reputation in the, these larger networks plays a big role. On a kind of a larger, more, uh, more uh, on a larger issue, of, uh, there are things that cannot be said in the, in the context of, uh, of academic work, hate speech, stereotypes are not uh, accepted, plagiarism is not accepted, malpractices uh, also is also an issue. So in a sense, we are constrained by these, these rules, but also by the, our participation into these larger infrastructure that are somewhere in the middle between the public space and, uh, and academia per se. And I think this is an important uh, aspect to the discussion today in a sense that there are new facts, uh, new, new dynamics in the academic world that we need to take into account. There are more and more non-tenure positions, and in that context, these individuals are not in a position necessarily to say whatever they want. There's also a multiplication of what I call semi-academic structure, where there's a mix of, uh, of uh, work done in the terms of research, academic research, but also outreach to a larger community. There are new means of communication, even in classrooms. Uh, some students tweet what professors say, or even film in some context. We have to take that into account. And I guess on the most, most positive side, now we, we believe in general that there is a need for a safe space uh, for the elimination of microaggression in the context of academia, and also more polarization among students. So in that context, uh, what can be done about that? Well, I, I believe in a more pragmatic perspective on academic freedom. And at the end of the day, what really matters are three things in particular. I want to be able to speak the truth to power, uh, political power, but also institutional power, by using research to uh, inform uh, the, the public debate. I want to be able to be unpopular. That means being able to say things that are not necessarily uh, part of the common discourse, or even are uh, seen as a view of a minority. I want to be protected from, uh, from any, any uh, punishment from, from that behavior. I also want to be able to fail in my research. And I think that's important. Uh, one of the things about academic freedom when you're, when you're in a tenure track uh, position is this idea that I might spend three, four, five years on a topic, and it might not bring anything interesting at the end of the day. In other contexts, that would probably lead to me getting fired by my uh, employers. Uh, in, the, the, in the world of academia, I have this luxury to be able to fail and try again uh, on, um, on other topics, on other research paths. One last thing that is kind of on the top of it but is related to the recent events is this idea that uh, we have to be careful what we say in public, even when we use research. But I think it's important to be even more, even more careful when we're talking about topics related to historically or current under, uh, underprivileged groups, okay? This is true for those who work on First Nations, uh, immigrants, uh, sexual minorities, or even, uh, at least in an historical perspective, uh, French-speaking uh, French Quebecers. So in that sense, I believe that, and this might actually be kind of um, in addition to academic freedom, these kind of concerns, but I think as part of a, a larger public debate, it is important to keep in mind that as individuals, we have to be uh, careful and ethical in our use of the public space. Thank you. Thank you, Marc-André. Uh, Alison. Thank you. So I, I want to take a step back um, before I respond to that question and talk a bit why we care about academic freedom because I think it's important to think about what the objectives of academic freedom are before we talk about possible limits on it. 
So if you think about why we care about academic freedom, it's really to ensure the advancement of knowledge without constraints on individual researchers. Uh, historically, that might be political or religious. Um, in current day, they, they can be all sorts of things. But what we care about is that people can ask challenging questions and that they can engage in debates that might not be popular, that they can ask questions that really call into question things that we think we already know. And so academic freedom is really there in order to ensure that uh, we're not in silos asking similar questions as everyone else because the critical nature of it, of the advancement of knowledge is really important there. So if we keep that in mind as what the objective of academic freedom is, I think it's important to think about how we do that. And how we do that traditionally has been through the process of tenure. So academic freedom is in theory applied to everyone, but in practice it's really guaranteed for those that have full job security. So this is a point I want to come back to because as we shift away from having the bulk of faculty with that protection, it becomes much more problematic to ensure academic freedom. So that's the, the point I wanted to make uh, first. So if the objective of academic freedom is the advancement of knowledge, then if we think about possible limits on the types of speech that people engage in, I think caution uh, should be the order of the day. So I, I, I agree with Marc-Andre, there are certain things uh, that legally can't be said. And so if there are legal restrictions on speech in a given country, in a, in a democratic society, against hate speech, against libel, uh, against other types of forms of speech like that, I can see there being professional consequences for it. The other primary restriction that I think is legitimate for having academic consequences, professional consequences, in terms of possible uh, unemployment as a consequence um, are plagiarism and, and, and unprofessional uh, behavior that's viewed by our colleagues as things that are just unacceptable. And the reason they're unacceptable is because they prevent the advancement of knowledge. They're, they're not in that pursuit. Um, so those are the two types of limits that I can see. So if the question is whether or not uh, academic freedom should be absolute, well, no. Uh, but it should be close to absolute. So, so we should be sort of moving towards absolute freedom as much as possible. And the consequence for bad research should be different than the consequence for things that are limit types of speech that can, types of academic speech that can be legitimately uh, censored in some way by your institution through employment consequences. The reason I say that is because Marc-Andre pointed out a lot of ways in which we're constrained in what we work on and the types of questions we ask. And those sorts of professional constraints are really imposed on us by our colleagues. And so there's this collegial nature to the advancement of knowledge where our colleagues are constantly giving us feedback, to put it positively, and criticizing us harshly, to put it negatively. Um, and this is part of the process, and it's part of the process that, again, goes towards that objective, towards advancing knowledge. Our institutions, however, are not necessarily there to participate directly in that process of criticisms between colleagues. They're there uh, for institutional reasons. So that's why I think that we have to divide those two types of consequences. So academic freedom is really linked to your career development and the possibilities for you to ask tough questions, um, ask perhaps wrong questions, and to, have to fail in your research endeavors. I want to point out two reasons before I conclude my introductory remarks about why uh, we have to be really to err on the side of caution with this. And there are two. First is that the potential costs are, of, of limiting academic free speech are disproportionately felt by some. 
And so as I mentioned in my, in, when I was beginning, uh, tenured faculty really have by far the most protection to explore challenging questions. The consequences for them outside of professional misconduct are very limited. But increasingly, we have people who are not necessarily in tenure track or tenured positions. They're in, in contract positions. And the second type of people who are disproportionately penalized by this are people who are marginalized on other axes. So uh, in an environment where you have historical male privilege as well as white privilege, you can imagine the people who are asking challenging questions from positions of marginalization might uh, be the targets of censorship much to a much greater extent than other people. And this is something I think has come up recently um, in some of the discussions about the ways in which privileges allow you, privilege, not privileges, privilege allows you to ask challenging questions. Um, and when you don't have that necessarily, um, you're increasingly constrained both by your colleagues um, and potentially by your institutions if you move away from absolute, uh, more absolute forms of freedom. So I just want to end on this idea um, that precarious work as well as cleavages of marginalization are two forms in which when we start moving away from more absolute guarantees on academic freedom, they're felt disproportionately by people in those two situations. And those two situations tend to be highly correlated. So our precarious workforce tends to be uh, disproportionately female, disproportionately people of color. And so this, this, can, this can limit the uh, initial goal that I was talking about, the advancement of knowledge by people asking tough questions. And these people are particularly well placed to ask challenging questions. And so we want to make sure that we're not silencing those voices. Thank you, Alison. Uh, Jacob. Academic freedom is a set of procedural and jurisdictional rules. And procedural and jurisdictional rules exclude content-based intrusion. For the principle, the side that gets 51% of the votes carries the election. That principle is only a principle if it is independent of the identity of which side it is that wins. A jurisdictional claim, uh, which province gets to assert that a particular person can be called to trial before its court. That isn't affected by a province saying, well, but this offense is really, really bad, and we really want to be the ones who have jurisdiction over it. The jurisdictional rules are given in a content-independent way. The jurisdictional and procedural protections of academic freedom say that the university and very often especially the subordinate academic units of the university, departments or classrooms, uh, may only and must only make internal decisions according to the norms internal to the research and teaching enterprise. If when I'm giving a student a grade, I give the student a worse grade on the grounds that I don't like what they said about politics uh, outside the classroom context, then I am violating the student's academic freedom. There's no amount of anything the student can say about politics outside the confines of the classroom, nothing that can possibly be extreme enough because the norm is not a sliding scale norm about how much we like what is said. It is a jurisdictional protection the student has 
their grade will be determined by the academic quality of the work that they've done within the course according to the standards that are the appropriate standards internal to the subject matter. In the context of a classroom, the professor is, as it were, the local instantiation of those norms um, unless there is evidence to show that the professor has violated them and introduced something else and violated the student's academic freedom. Uh, likewise for the research enterprise. It is not a restriction of or a qualification of academic freedom to say no plagiarism and no research fraud. It is an instantiation of the norms of the research enterprise. To have academic freedom isn't to have a kind of general license like freedom of speech, the freedom of speech that we have as citizens of a liberal democratic society. Freedom of speech encompasses the freedom to hire someone to ghostwrite a book for me and publish it under my own name. That's perfectly legitimate as a matter of law for free speech and freedom of the press. Within the university, it's an expelling offense for a student and a firing offense for a professor, even for a tenured professor. That's not a qualification of academic freedom. That is what the relevant norms are. But the relevant norms forbid concern with for example, the political, ideological, or religious content of the views that are expressed by the student, by the researcher, by the professor. To have the norm is to have it absolutely. That doesn't mean there aren't difficult questions about describing the norm. But the norm is not one that admits of kind of, sort of, content-based qualifications. I will include within that absolute statement uh, the rejection of the idea that the wider polity's legal restrictions on speech are as such legitimate limitations for the university, the department, the professor to impose on an internal basis. That I live in a society that prohibits criticism of our great national leader. That I live in a society that prohibits organization of dissident and subversive political parties that I live in a society that has a criminal or civil prohibition on hate speech. Those might subject the offender against those rules to legal liability. But to be subjected to legal liability still is not to be subjected to legitimate university punishment. The professor grading papers, the department deciding whether to hire or tenure someone, or the university deciding whether to fire or discipline someone may not take considerations like that legitimately into account. They are not internal to the academic enterprise itself. Insisting very firmly on this, insisting on the freedom of academic units to bring in the speakers who they, seem, who they think will advance the educational mission of the academic unit by the provocation of debate, by the proliferation of interesting, controversial views, uh, the insistence that the university as such may not be subjected to the kind of content-based attack that we're seeing now in Hungary. Those seem to me all to go hand in hand. Uh, there. Uh, that, 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 that ends. Sorry to... Uh...
sorry to distract you from maybe the conclusion, but we'll have lots of uh, chance for interchange. Uh, Eric. Yeah. Thank you, Leslie. Uh, well, first I'd like to thank uh, Dietlin for uh, inviting me here. I'm really happy to be here. Uh, and before I start, uh, I should say something about myself that uh, Leslie has not mentioned. I'm a uh, department chair, and I have been for a while. And, and it's important for what I'm about to say. Uh, some of you might, after this, uh, might think that I've been a department chair for way too long. Um, so should academic freedom be absolute? My short answer is no. Freedom of speech, I think, as uh, Jacob just mentioned, should be nearly absolute, but academic freedom is different. First, it applies to university professors, and it applies in the context, the institutional context of universities. To me, and that's where it's important to know that I'm a chair, academic freedom refers to a sense or an attitude of restraint on the part of the authorities within universities when it comes to their interventions in the teaching and the research of their professors. And despite their sense of restraint, authorities still intervene, if only because they allocate course loads to professors. Sometimes interventions are a bit more significant. If there's a need, for example, to harmonize the, uh, the content of uh, intro courses uh, by, given by various profs, um, and, and they also intervene in research when, for instance, they decide on research priorities uh, within their institution for the allocation of research chairs, for instance, or even some research funding. Now, to be sure, these are light intervention, and, um, but they are intervention nonetheless. I guess that the, uh, the, the most important question is, can these interventions be a bit heavier? And, and again, my answer would be yes. That being said, I really prefer self-regulation when it comes to, uh, to, uh, to, uh, to, to academic freedom, and by far. But still, I am not prepared to rule out all forms of heavier intervention, and here's why. Because academic freedom can be in tension with the preservation of the credibility of universities as knowledge institutions. That's the main argument I want to make here. I mean, again, academic freedom can be in tension with the preservation of the credibility of universities as knowledge institutions. While I think that professors have a fundamental role in preserving this credibility, I believe that the university administration should also keep an eye on the credibility of their institutions, even if it means heavier encroachments on academic freedoms once in a while. Let me give you extreme illustrations of this. I certainly would hope that my own university would intervene if a colleague today was to come out saying that vaccines cause autism. I think it, it's known, it's wrong. Uh, it can cause damage, and not only to the credibility of the institution, so I would hope in this context that the university would say something. Now let me take a more benign idea. Suppose a colleague in my own department was in the media saying, without any proof, that the American election was rigged, that Trump got support from the majority as a department chair. I think that I would ask my superiors to say something. I would hope that other colleagues would stop such a calling before it's too late, but if it doesn't happen, I would view it as legitimate if the authorities within my institutions were to say something to protect our collective credibility. Does this mean that as professors, all we can say has to be backed by years of research? Of course not. But when something is, backed by, is not backed by solid research, 
we have to be extremely cautious. And such a sense of caution does not always sit well with the media, although it's fundamental to preserve our uh, credibility. And I would argue that it's also fundamental for journalism as well. Uh, right now, journalists like citing us in their articles. But the day we lose our credibility, there will be no point for them to come to us anymore. And who else will be able to validate the various theories that they present to the public? If journalists are serious about truth, they should accept our prudence as well as our reluctance to speak about topics for which we have no particular expertise. I know that this model does not work equally well um, in all scholarly disciplines, uh, notably in those disciplines where empirical observations is not a preferred way of conducting research. In all disciplines, however, the production of knowledge is a collective enterprise. Out of the research that we publish and the scholarly reactions that we, uh, that we get from these publications, out of the academic debates that take place at the conferences uh, among professors, uh, which sometimes seem pointless to non-academics, emerge some collective wisdom about legitimate or true ideas and less legitimate and less true ideas. And if a professor in a class, as much as in public, decides to take a position that is far outside this collective wisdom, he or she should be extremely prudent. Certainly that this scholar should not expect from university authorities to enjoy the same type of protection as he or she would get if she were to stay within that collective wisdom. I'll stop here. Well, thank you all. Um, five minutes ago or so, I thought I would uh, draw a spectrum and position each panelist on the degree of absoluteness that they um, advocate. I think that would be unfair. Uh, you were listening to them. You can place them on a spectrum yourself if you think there's any value in that. We did hear um, differing views. Uh, uh, including one intervention that went quite close to endorsing the absolute freedom, but obviously in the context of, of the society and its laws, such as libel and hate speech and so on. Uh, and our, our first panelist perhaps had more reservations, uh, although our last one did as well. Anyway, enough of that. Um, what I'm going to do is now shift us towards um, what is in some ways at the nub of all of this, uh, which is the uh, nature of the interventions that uh, members of universities make, uh, often using their research, but not necessarily. And the interventions are of various sorts, op-eds, blogs, uh, interviews, the talking head syndrome. We've all done this. Uh, sometimes the questions like, at Radio-Canada are excellent, and the researchers have done their field work and so on. Sometimes, uh, I won't give the opposite example because that would be disingenuous, but uh, uh, another television network. Uh, sometimes the degree of preparation is not so great, and you don't have a clue ahead of time of what they're going to ask you, and it doesn't always turn out in a very good way. But uh, one thing we can say is that uh, 
many of our colleagues, and I mean, we do this at the Institute for Research on Public Policy too. When I was there for the first time in the 1990s, we didn't even have a communications officer. We now have three people working full time on various aspects of communication. We've just hired someone as a web and social media specialist. That's going to be her full time job. And we have a second person who came a couple of years ago and who's, uh, among other things, involved in podcasts and tweets and all kinds of things. So it's not just the university academics who are, who are uh, being um, sought after and also, um, to be quite honest, being pressured. Uh, encouraged might be a better verb. So uh, let's explore that more practical uh, aspect of the, the role of, uh, of university professors. I just put a parenthesis here, though, because Marc-André made a very good point that I think we shouldn't lose track of, which is that uh, the composition of people in universities who are likely to be in the public eye has been changing. As you mentioned, more non-tenured positions and also more people who are in, I think you use the term, semi-academic positions. So that's not everyone is in a classic, uh, you know, uh, publish or perish five years to tenure and then ultimate freedom till the end of their career. That is a model that is still very much alive and I hope it remains so, but not everybody is following in exactly that path. So here are the questions. Uh, we're going to talk about the intellectual role of public contributions by faculty members. Uh, is the role to inform the public about research or is it also to provoke discussion in society using the informed role of the academic to engage people in thought without always basing ideas on research directly? Which of these roles do you support? Um, if you don't feel comfortable making a binary choice, um, you can answer my questions uh, another way. So I don't know who wants to start. We don't need to go in the same order. We don't, you don't all need to answer this one. There might be a more interesting question coming. There might, it might actually be duller, though, so you might want to, uh, you might want to get in now. Okay, go ahead, Marc-André. Um, well, the first thing is uh, when it comes to knowledge, there, are some, there, there is normative research and there is positive research. Uh, normative researchers are looking for what's right and what's wrong, while uh, positive researchers are looking for what's, uh, right, uh, what's true and what's false. And in that sense, I'm a more of a positive researcher, but I believe that those doing more normative work should play a, a role in society. This is what, uh, in the, for example, in philosophy, people, they, they think about uh, important topics and they should give their opinion about things. But, what, what, but when it comes to researchers who are more into empirical work, I think we should be extremely careful to uh, share our uh, opinions about that. And in that sense, um, I think that if, as a, as, a, as a member of academia, I want to change the world or improve the world around me, I think teaching and, re and research is the way to do it. Op-eds uh, are for uh, other kinds of agents of change, and I don't think I'm one of them. I can provide arguments to those who are trying to make more uh, normative or uh, opinionated arguments, but I should not use my position and my legitimacy to push in one direction or the other. Thank you. Alison, you look as though you're 
I, I just want to completely disagree. Good. <laughs> so I'll jump in there. Um, so I want to go back to Leslie's question and then I'll take on Marc Andre a little bit. Um, I don't think the distinction between inf informing and provoking discussion are actually distinct things. I think good information about what's going on in the world can provoke an immense amount of discussion. So I wouldn't actually pose those two things as binary, which is why I also disagree with Marc Andre. I think providing information or a an empirically or normatively informed argument via a public platform, I don't see that as problematic at all. Um, I think it's part of disseminating what we're doing. I think it's really hard to do well. And I think we can come back to doing it well is difficult, especially when we don't actually have any training in that sort of knowledge dissemination. Um, but I don't think me writing an op-ed about something that's going on currently, if it's informed by my research, I don't see that as problematic at all. And my opinion is obviously going to go through that because I don't think positive research is actually neutral, normatively. I, I would agree with this, uh, with this last point, actually. Um, I mean, I think that research can be provoked. Really, the results of research can be provocative. But for, for sure, they have normative implications. And I think that it's also our role to discuss these normative implications. That There's no doubt about it. Um, you mentioned something about informing the public about research. Um, there's, there's, it happens two ways, really. Like the first way is, um, or it could happen two ways. Like first, journalist calls in and say, well, you know, we have this political party saying this thing. Is it true? Is it not true? And then we can say, well, based on the literature, based on research that have been done, it is true or it's not true. Um, so this is kind of the most common uh, way that we talk about research in the in the media. Uh, the other way less, um, less um, I guess, uh, common is when a, a journalist calls you and say, well, you've published this great research. Can you tell us more about it? And that, I mean, I think it's too bad. It doesn't happen often enough. Uh, but uh, this is, uh, this is uh, the, the two ways that I see. And then there's a, a third way with which I, I kind of have questions about. And it's like some people call this like playing the public intellectual. Um, I mean. Many years ago, I guess I wasn't even born, like journalists were content with transmitting knowledge to the public or transmitting information. So, uh, and, uh, and so that journalism was about that. Newspapers were about that, basically. It's no longer the case. Today, I mean, a lot of the space within the media is devoted to columnists of all kinds. And they are today's public intellectuals. And I really don't see, and sometimes I have trouble seeing how um, our university professors can do better than they do. I mean, if it's just if it's just basically saying our opinion. I mean, again, if the journalist calls you saying, "Well, you've done this terrific research on something. Tell me more about more about it." It is somehow playing the public intellectual as well. But if every week you're in the media giving your opinion on something different, I mean, I don't see how university professors are trained to do it better than a columnist, frankly. I think we should. Jacob, did you want to away. come in on this one? Please. Go ahead. Um, I think we want to distinguish pretty sharply here between questions of academic freedom with respect to extramural speech and questions of responsible behavior. Uh, the traditional view, and it's going to be hard, I think, for some people to believe this, but the traditional view was that acting as a public intellectual, engaging in extramural speech, was something slightly disreputable for academics to do. It was kind of embarrassing. 
You might do it in the privacy of your own home, but your colleagues weren't expected to treat you very seriously. Uh, the, the academic freedom rule about it was that the content of extramural speech was entirely irrelevant to internal university decision-making. Your op-eds, your columns, if you went in for that kind of thing. They couldn't be used to give you a grade penalty. They couldn't be used to refuse to grant you your PhD. They couldn't be used to refuse someone tenure. And they couldn't be used to discipline or fire someone after they've been hired. Um, because, as it were, that was entirely outside the university enterprise. It's your weird little hobby. <coughs> uh, and, and, and this was true even when, for example, uh, when I was growing up, I read alternating biweekly columns in Newsweek by Milton Friedman and Robert Samuelson, a right-wing market economist and a left-wing Keynesian economist. And Newsweek thought that it was productive with respect to its readers' knowledge to have trained economists who had a broad framework into which they could fit information about new events of the day. Uh, they were, as it were, giving their opinions, but the thought was that their opinions, by virtue of being informed by everything else that they know, were worth something. They were worth something in public discourse. Uh, so there was a great deal of public prominence to some of these. Those columns were extremely widely read in the US when I was a kid. But the public prominence of them didn't mean that the university press office was sending them out there. It was the weird little hobby. The fact that in the last really 10 years, maybe 15, universities have adopted a very different stance toward this kind of thing seems to me generally for the good. Because it very often is the case that academics have a base of knowledge that allows them to contextualize and make sense of new information. Doesn't mean they've done research of a peer-reviewed quality on the new situation. It means that they have a base of knowledge to build from. And universities have gradually discovered that it is to their advantage for professors to speak from that base of knowledge in a way that uh, doesn't rely on genuinely new peer-reviewable research contributions, but that does build on what they have at their disposal. I think that's generally for the good. I think it's generally good for the quality of public debate. And in particular, in the age of the internet proliferation of media outlets, given how many terrible sources of information there are, I don't think we would want to culturally discourage the influx of something that's somewhat better. But when universities now take an interest in our extramural communications, that can't suddenly have the consequence that our extramural communications are less free than they were when the universities ignored it. If it is good from the university's perspective that we do this kind of thing, then we should be happy to have the university's support. But we aren't, as it were, selling our pen in exchange for the university promotion. Uh, and so as a matter of academic freedom, it still has to be the case that the fallback position is extramural speech is just invisible to the university. If the university wants to do more than that, great. As a matter of best responsible practice, we need to monitor ourselves and we need to monitor each other to see whether what we're doing is freelance opinionating 
or things that have a recognizable relationship to our own knowledge bases. Um, in general, there is, I think, the emergence of a genuinely self-regulatory civil sphere as academics engage each other in public, including challenging each other on the question of whether a particular intervention is relevantly supported by the literature, is relevantly within a speaker's area of expertise. We should do that. We should do more of it. That's not the same thing as saying extramural speech that stretches beyond someone's core area of expertise, therefore becomes an admissible ground for intra-university uh, reprisals. Thank you. Uh, Marc-Andre wants to come in, and then I'm going to move to another question. Um, let's talk about economists for a second, since you brought the topic. Um, I used to have the dream of becoming an economist, and it didn't happen, so maybe it's out of bitterness. I'm going to say what I'm going to say, but still. Um, I think good economists are not there to tell you you should do this is good, free market is good, or whatever is bad. What good economists are supposed to say is if you do this, this is what will happen. Okay, and this is a completely different prescription as, a, as, a, as someone in academia. I think same thing in political science. We should be very careful. I work on electoral politics. I'm not there to say to people to vote for one party or the other. I'm not even there to tell them, well, you should pick what, that electoral system or the other. I'm there to tell them this is what we know. If we, if we take this decision, this is what, what will happen. And then you sh we should let, in the public sphere, people making decisions based on their values and their preferences, we should inform their in their decision. And I think using a title as a university professor to be kind of part of a kind of elite uh, on, on all kinds of topics is a big mistake because on a lot of things, the only source of information I have are the media. And sometimes I hear colleagues on TV or radio talking about Syria or United States, and I'm like, they read the New York Times. Why are they on TV to talk about what they read on the New York Times? It is a problem. I know it's, it's easy to get, fall into this, this, this circus of being everywhere and saying my opinions about all kinds of things, but I think it is a mistake. We should stick to what we know, and we should inform the debate instead of trying to push people one side or the other. Thank you. Jacob has um, developed uh, an interesting distinction between extramural and intramural or intra-university um, academic freedom. So I'll ask you then a question. I think Jacob has answered it pretty well. But should universities protect both of those roles to the same degree? The outside university increasingly through these public interventions and so on, and the inside university, obviously, through mostly through publication, through the traditional channels of learned journals and, and peer-reviewed uh, edited books and so on, and obviously single author books. Can I? Sure. sure. Um, I think we should be in the media. But I don't think that the two roles should be protected to the same extent or should be valorized to the same extent. Um, Jacob was saying we have a base of knowledge that uh, kind of uh, allows us to uh, have uh, an original perspective on many things. A and I would agree with that to an extent. I mean, I think that our base uh, of knowledge is not sufficient or, or is not capable of giving us uh, an original point of view weeks after weeks after weeks after weeks after weeks. And, and I'll give you just one example. 
When Paul Krugman began writing in the New York Times, I thought, oh, this is refreshing. It's interesting. He has that base of knowledge that perhaps other columnists don't have. But after, what, like 10 years now of writing in the New York Times, I think his base of knowledge has expired. <laughs> I mean, it's just, it no longer delivers what it should deliver. I think that to an extent, we should be scarce in the media. And the problem that I see is that most of us are. But it's just a few who are just like way too present. And at one point, what they begin doing is just read the New York Times and then repeat what's there or you know, have this analysis that anyone else, any good columnist actually could do. I mean, we have to have, when we're there, we have to add value to what is there. And, uh, and, and, and again, I, I just don't believe that the base of knowledge is sufficient to do it like really intensively. We have to be scarce to an extent. But I'm glad that you have uh, taken some of the journalists down off the um, temple where you had placed them originally as public intellectuals because <laughs> I'll just allow myself one comment, which is I think, I think some journalists uh, may not even start with as much interest and skill and knowledge as Paul Krugman did at the very beginning. Um, there certainly are some examples in our country, including... Uh, one person who writes for the Globe and Mail, uh, but I'll stop there. Uh, does anyone want to come in about the the degree of protection, whether it should be the same or quite similar? Or well, I, I kind of wanted to respond to Eric um, because I think there's a difference between having uh, so uh, somebody who's in the media all the time commenting on all sorts of things that they're not necessarily experts on, and I think. If we're talking about academic freedom, we're not necessarily talking about disciplinary actions from the institution in that context. What we're talking about is our colleagues evaluating that work as less important, not as good, um, not as sound as other colleagues. And so the consequences for bad interventions publicly should be the same consequences as bad research. Uh, you should be evaluated poorly by your colleagues in whatever your internal process is there. And so for me, the distinction isn't really a question about academic freedom there. It's a question about the ways in which we evaluate each other as colleagues. And I think the comment I made at the beginning about the collegial evaluation of what we do is fundamental to the advancement of knowledge. And I think the processes we have for that, we need to think about when they come to public interventions. But I don't think that raises necessarily the question about whether there should be disciplinary employment consequences for that. Marc-André? Um, that brings us closer to uh, recent examples. And um, in a sense, if colleagues of mine are publishing op-eds and are kind of not necessarily in their comfort zone, you know, uh, of course, they should never get punished for that. They might get, we, we might get a good laugh at them uh, at a meeting or another. But then the, the, the question is, when you bring with your credibility a research group, an institute, uh, some of your colleagues, then then the problem is real. And then maybe there should be some, some consequences. In the recent example, this is exactly what happened. If a single professor wants to use his or her credibility to, to be part of the public debate, it might not be the best idea, but I think the university should make sure to protect these individuals. If they're, they're, they're dragging with them other, other scholars, uh, then there's, there, for me, there's a, there's a bigger problem. The other thing, and uh, we've discussed that uh, a bit before, but um, I don't ask my university to agree with me, and I certainly don't want the university to endorse what I'm saying in public. Actually, the role of the university should be kind of a wall to protect us uh, and protect the, 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 the diversity of ideas and opinions inside uh, its walls. 
So in that sense, they should not be for or against uh, professors doing op-eds or being on Twitter all the time, as long as it doesn't have any impact on their research. The problem is quite often, if you spend too much time on Twitter, you'll not spend enough time doing actual research. But that's another question for another debate. You're, you're, thank you, Marc-Andre. You're partly doing my job for me, which is to segue into the last question before we go to the discussion. Um, and this is sort of going down the funnel of practicality and, in a way, topicality. Is the position of, of someone who's heading a, a research center or an institute uh, so different that that person should be subject to either different rules of academic freedom or less academic freedom. Again, you know, as universities have changed and um, academics are more present in the public eye, as you mentioned at the very beginning, uh, the nature of the um, sort of employment cadre within universities uh, in the, the research and academic side has changed and probably will continue to do so. So, um, and it's not that this has just happened. Universities have moved in this way, and granting councils are also part of the story and so on. So the people who are taking on those positions, should they somehow be um, lesser citizens, uh, lesser participants uh, as, as researchers? So I'll, Allison? Um, so I think this is a tough question, um, but I think what universities need to think about is whether or not those are academic positions or not. And if the stand is that we want an academic to hold those roles, then I think it's important that we don't make those roles unattractive to academics. Uh, if they want somebody who's a public communications expert and that's what the role is, then that's fine. And then we hire people to run institutes, but they, bring the, they don't bring the prestige of having a PhD with them in that case. It's not an academic position anymore. More. I don't think the university can have it both ways. They want the prestige and the title of an academic position, but then also have uh, somebody who's going to do this public function as well. And in fact, that public function is a primary component of the job description. So I feel like it's a, if you can't have it both ways, <laughs> I guess is my short response to that. Um. <clears throat> I guess it will vary, like whether um, someone has or enjoyed the same academic freedom as a, uh, a professor or as a, uh, a director of a, a research uh, institute or center um, will vary from university to university and even perhaps within the same university. Uh, like in my, in my capacity as, as department chair, I would never sign an op-ed as a department chair without getting the authorization from above because in my university, I'm appointed from the dean. And I'm no longer unionized. It's very clear that uh, as far as that job is concerned, um, I, I don't enjoy the same academic freedom as I do as a professor. But as a chair, I also remain professor. And therefore, I am you know, free and I can, I can, I can count on, on the protection of my academic freedom for anything that I sign as a professor. And again, like research, some research centers are just like my department is the dean that appoints. Some others, it's the colleagues that decide, and maybe that it's a little bit different there. But uh, but I think that this will vary a lot from institution to institution. Just if I can add something, also for a lot of these positions, there's a there's a board of administrators. There are people who are appointed to uh, to uh, make sure everything goes according to the plan, or even there's a scientific committee. 
And these cases are also quite different from a, from a typical research group where it's just colleagues all together. So it could be the university should be could, could in some cases be responsible of what's going on. Let's say the dean decides if the chair stays or not. But then you can have a board whose job is to make sure um, uh, the plan, the values, the charter of, the, of a given organization is maintained. And then the question is, is it a good idea to get non-tenure uh, professors who run uh, institutes or, or, or research groups? Well, that puts them in a very uh, difficult situation, uh, that's for sure. I think, too, if I may offer just a small comment, there's um, we've talked a bit about some of the informal ways in which quality and and accuracy and so on can be can be controlled or disciplined by by colleagues and and by the kind of exposure um, I think too that there is a difference between writing a personal blog and writing something for a media organization uh, it seems to me that a media organization does have some responsibility for quality control um, and uh, that may not be exercised as fully as it once did because media organizations, particularly newspapers, print media, are, are stretched. I mean, we're, it's surprising that we have as many newspapers as we still have in this country, although in some, some cases it doesn't seem to make any sense to even pick them up. I read the Globe and Mail online, and every once in a while when I'm getting on Air Canada, there's a few of them sitting on a rack, and I pick one up just to see what it looks like, and I realize that I should stop doing it because it's just so, so disappointing. Anyway, we're now going to turn to the, oh, you wanted to come in, Jacob? Go ahead, sure. Um, Allison, I think, is very right about needing to make sure that we have protections in place that still make service in academic tasks attractive to faculty members. Uh, insofar as we think that universities are faculty-governed institutions, and faculty governance is an animating principle sometimes honored in the breach, but still very often treated as a central value of universities. Insofar as universities are faculty governed, to take part in governance can't mean that you cease to be faculty. Um, the, the idea that people, in, once they acquire a title, uh, then have to be careful about how their name appears. This, I worry, is something that is kind of crystallizing as a conventional wisdom around here over the last couple of weeks in a way that does not reflect standard practice when academics interact with the media. Uh, so Jeffrey Sachs, the head of the Earth Institute at Columbia University. Many, many dozens of faculty are members of the Earth Institute. Jeffrey Sachs signs every op-ed that he writes. Jeffrey Sachs is director of the Earth Institute at Columbia University. I would almost guarantee, first, that those op-eds are not vetted, either by colleagues or by superiors. Second, that if he raised the question with his superiors, should I be doing this? Their answer would be, of course. You are our advertising face. As I said before, the f if universities want to actively encourage this public participation, then they can't turn around and say, but by the way, you are now speaking for the university or speaking for your institute in a way that implicates your colleagues. The background norm is, no, no, however you've identified a person, and the newspaper wants to identify you by your highest title because that makes it look like they have a more prestigious contribution, um, 
however you're identified, as a scholar making a public contribution, you speak for yourself. Um, and that's a norm that's worth reiterating and insisting on if we care about faculty governance. If we instead want to say people, when they become things like directors or chairs, are now administrators in a bright line way that puts them on the far side of faculty governance. That's going to have far-reaching implications, uh, and I think that's a very bad principle to try to spin out of an attempt to justify um, a particular case. Thank you very much uh, for those thoughtful comments. We'll now go to um, the audience. Uh, I'll recognize you, some of you I know. Uh, Professor Weinstock is there. I expected he would want to come in. Um, so he doesn't need to identify himself, but please put on your microphone, uh, Daniel. And others, uh, when you follow, please uh, introduce yourself and then uh, after using the microphone button. Go ahead, Daniel. So I actually have a very uh, specific question, uh, which I think was probably directed to uh, Professor Montpetit, but I'd be happy to hear from uh, anybody about it. Uh, Professor Montpetit raised a very real uh, concern, which is that uh, certain ways of acting within ac ac academia could, as it were, dilapidate our uh, our capital, make our currency less valuable uh, than it might be. But I, I wonder, so you presented in your, in your, in your brief talk two ways in which uh, we can ward this off. One is through self-policing. Somebody says something stupid. I mean, the two examples that you gave, somebody talking about uh, vaccines causing autism and the other one about the rigged election. You, I mean, you know academics as well as I do. Within minutes of an article to those effects being published, there would be scores of academics showing, sometimes politely, sometimes not politely, uh, how this person has gone wrong. Um, the other uh, sort of solution which you said was one that you didn't favor but that you could see uh, being required in some circumstances is for uh, the upper administration to come in and, and say, no, this doesn't work. I wonder whether, I mean, it seems to me quite obvious that the best way in which to keep our currency up is to go for strategy number one rather than strategy number two. If I were a member of the general public and I saw that this community has lost the capacity to self-police and requires its upper administration, who are made up of people who don't necessarily have expertise in the area in which they are shouting a colleague down, I would think that the currency would be much in much worse trouble in scenario two than in scenario one. Um, I, I think that most of the public would see in scenario one uh, professors disagreeing among themselves, and therefore, you know, there's no like, there, there's no position that is true in this debate. It's just like again, professors disagreeing with them among themselves. I think that if there's an institutional voice that intervene in the debate, I think that it would give more weight to one scenario, and that's what we want here. I think to preserve our currency. I mean, that's what I would say. Again, like the way that uh, that the uh, administration, like I wouldn't want to be cut into a situation like that myself, uh, to be honest. Uh, but I think that the, the way that the university could intervene would have to be uh, thought through. It would have to be extremely careful. It would have to be some kind of a statement that is made some, somehow. Um, but it becomes like some kind of a communication exercise. Like I'm not talking about penalizing this person in any way, like uh, firing this person or you know putting a note in his dossier. But I think that. I mean, I would like, I think, to see university administrators um, saying, well, we, we have to do something to preserve the credibility of this institution. And, um, and again, I think that they should, again, intervene carefully. Marc-André? Um, 
Let's imagine you break your leg and you show up at the hospital and the doctor, uh, who's a specialist on this issue, says, well, there's a cardiac surgeon who would like to give an opinion about that too. You would be like, why? What's the matter? Well, he likes to talk about different things and see all kinds of stuff. You would be surprised by this. And I, my, I believe that it's important to be uh, scarce because there are enough people around that can provide a clear, informed, um, clear informed content on different topics. If we still want to have uh, these, these social scientists who have an opinion about everything, well, we're not going to be taken seriously. Because in serious science, it's very difficult to be an expert on something. So in that sense, I believe that if everybody sticks to what they know with facts and with data and research, well, there's enough people around to make sure there's people available for, for the media all the time. The danger is if you always see then these faces who are coming uh, out with uh, all kinds of ideas, sometimes false, and if we give space to too many of these, uh, of these uh, members of the academia who say stuff that are sometimes ridiculous, well, at the end, we all lose our credibility. So in that sense, I think we have to be careful and be very specialized and, 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 and careful when we enter the public debate. Sure, quickly. So I could imagine a cardiac specialist having a, a lot to say about a case of a, a broken leg. He might want, or she might want, uh, to be able to uh, weigh in on whether a person is able to sustain, given her cardiac condition, certain kinds of interventions rather than others. So, I mean, I think even working within the terms of your analogy, I can see all sorts of reasons for a cardiac specialist to come in. But I think actually the analogy speaks to uh, a broader point, which I think you're making for me, which is that most questions that we have to face our academics are rather broad. If we just speak to them from within our own little silos, we will never say anything that is actually of any interest to people who are trying to figure out how to deal with a complex social issue um, that requires the, the intervention of uh, various disciplines. And sometimes people who try in a good faith way to bring together the results of these different kind of disciplinary perspectives to show how they might be able to bear on a complex uh, issue, sometimes more complex than breaking your leg. Okay, I'm going to oh, take sorry. that as a comment and uh, allow some other people to come in, including students. Uh, you have these uh, sommité, as we say in French, in front of you, these leading authorities, but don't be cowed. Uh, the, the academic freedom, as uh, Jacob reminded us quite uh, uh, clearly at the beginning, the academic freedom is also relevant to students. Uh, he, he made the point about uh, it not being acceptable for students to be marked on interventions outside the classroom. Um, and I thought that was, that was an interesting compliment to our discussion. So uh, I'll go, I saw your hand just before uh, uh, in the back and then... Um, uh, okay, uh, so I'm Frederick Armstrong, I'm PhD candidate in philosophy and I'm just, it just seems that in all of this there's a... Uh, a conflation, not a conflation, but a confusion between being wrong and making a mistake and having the right to hold controversial uh, views. And it seems that in some cases, uh, just being wrong should be sanctioned in ways that, uh, in ways that should be uh, accepted by some kind of community internal to it and so on. But I'm, I'm not sure it, it's relevant to academic freedom. Uh, so, so in, in in these situations, when when you're uh, when you're holding something uh, a view that is wrong, in a particular sense, but it's not quite wrong insofar as you didn't follow the the, the particular rules of your uh, of your um, association, you shouldn't be uh, 
sanctioned. But in other cases, when you write an op-ed that is just wrong uh, by virtue of not having the facts straight, uh, straight you should... I'm not sure how academic freedom sort of is relevant in the in in thinking about sanctioning uh, failure. Does anyone want to come in in response to that? So I guess I think there's two points there. I think deciding something's wrong is very difficult sometimes, and so using that as the basis on which we're going to sanction faculty members, I think, is difficult because right and wrong and fact, especially among certain perspectives. Are, are not really necessarily things that are easy to define or even worthy of de definition. That's not the point of the exercise or even the academic exercise. Um, and I totally forgot my second point, so I'll let Marc-Andre come in there and then I'll come back. <laughs> <laughs> That's not nice of you to just like throw the, all the attention toward it. Uh, actually, I, I share a lot of your confusion in the sense that I've thought about this a lot and I think we tend to blend together all kinds of different issues. Um, and uh, what the, the question of what to do with people who are simply wrong or using um, falsehoods in, in, their, in, in their work or when they talk in public, I think it's difficult because most of the time you can make the argument in one sense or the other. But I still believe there's a minimum level of uh, accuracy or we have standards of, uh, you know, we're supposed to be intelligent people to some extent. And uh, to that extent, if someone crossed the line, well, we don't really know what to do because it's kind of new to have so much reaction after such an event because 10 years ago, like a piece in a like low quality magazine would have just passed away after a few days, but now there's a whole world of social media and reaction um, after that. So I don't know what the solution is, but I do feel that um, uh, in the public sphere, um, if I'm a member of a group of a research group and someone in my group says something in my name that is completely false, I would be extremely upset about that. The, then what to do about it, it's difficult, but let's say it was the person who's the director or the chair of that group, I would ask tough questions and I would also ask myself, does that person can still do the work he or she is doing right now? And if he or she cannot continue that way, well, I would probably push for a replacement. But if I can come in here, isn't there a risk of, uh, of some disciplines being, in some senses, treated more harshly than others? If someone publishes an op-ed or goes on television and says that the average temperature is now five degrees lower than it was uh, a decade ago, that person can be disproved. It won't take very long, or the example earlier that Trump actually uh, received more votes than uh, Hillary Clinton in the election. But if someone has a view that um, people from a certain race are have, have characteristics that are a bit more like this than people from another race and so on, can that person be called out immediately? The implications might be very serious, maybe more serious than saying that the temperature is cooler than it once was because nobody with a P in their brain is going to believe that person. So that some, in some disciplines, it's much more, uh, much easier to be called out than 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 in other disciplines. Um, uh, if there's, if we go into aid speech, that's a different question. But let's say global warming. Someone has some views personally, as a researcher says, believes that it's not true or it's true. Well, that's different. But if someone says once or repeatedly that it always snows in Montreal in July, well, that's false. 
Global warming is, a, and there's debate about the magnitude of it, but they are things that are simply false. And for me, like the, the, the line is a bit blurred, but I'm not saying I think controversial ideas is a problem. Far from it, I think it's really important. And there are things where there doesn't seem to be a consensus, but there's a limit to what you can say and keep your credibility. Okay, I want to bring uh, in may, the, may I quickly? Oh, okay, sure, um, Jacob. I, I, I wanted to emphasize in my initial works the way in which academic freedom is a procedural rule. As a procedural rule, there is not a difference between the rule um, no controversial views and no wrong views. Because what we're describing is a procedure in which some identifiable actor is going to reach the judgment about the acceptable limits of rightness and wrongness. And for the traditional cases that generated the North American norms about academic freedom, like uh, the espousal of communism or atheism, the relevant actors, if asked to judge the rightness or wrongness of those statements and doctrines, would have to a person said, that's clearly wrong. What we had to rely on was that university presidents and trustees were sufficiently committed to the doctrine of academic freedom that they could say, even though a clearly wrong view is being espoused, I may not discipline the professor because the clearly wrong view is outside the boundaries of their research and their research continues to meet scholarly standards. Thank you. Uh, the woman in the front here, thanks. Hi, I'm Alexis Labelle. I'm a PhD candidate in political science at the Université de Montréal. And my question is a bit in line with yours. Um, I mean, recently we've seen the shutdown of conferences uh, called out of being transphobic in McGill and UCAM. And um, academic, academic freedom has been used to, uh, to criticize uh, those shutdown as well as trigger warnings uh, saying that it impedes upon on academic freedom. So I just want to hear what is your stance on what the responsibility of university institutions is regarding um, those sort of conferences that have transphobic and uh, materials. Um, yeah. Alison, did you want to come in? You were talking earlier about the non-privileged groups. Well, I think there's two things there. When we're talking about academic freedom, for me, I'm really thinking about institutional disciplinary actions. And so I think Actors have the chance to make those comments given that they're legal, uh, but that doesn't mean people can't respond. And they can respond in ways we might not like or appreciate, and that includes shouting actors down. That's not my preferred way of communicating. Uh, I don't think it actually helps dialogue and debate, but I don't think that is really a question about academic freedom if, if people are organizing within their professional norms to have a communication. I think it's too bad that those conversations can't happen but I don't think we can extend uh, it to groups that mobilize against that kind of thing. Okay. Yes, go ahead. Thank you. Um, so it's been noted that there's different levels of academics, graduate students, adjunct professors, and tenured and tenure track professors. And at each level, there's different institutional constraints, both formal and informal. And so in practice, academic freedom doesn't apply equally to all academics. And so setting aside those with an administrative role, is this desirable? And who, if anyone, should be policing the academic freedom for those with less power or with less job security? You get three stars for a very good question, or <laughs> questions. Um, 
and Jacob, you're ready to go. Um, the, the categorical exclusions of non-academic considerations, those apply equally at all levels. Um, that doesn't mean that there aren't going to be other kinds of consequences, uh, but the starting point has to be able to say students, graduate students, adjunct faculty, untenured faculty, absolutely are fully entitled to the complete exclusion of irrelevant considerations, like the controversial character of their opinions. Tenure is an institutionalization of academic freedom. But tenure is not, as it were, the meaning of academic freedom. Tenure is one shape that the protection of it takes. Uh, policing of it has to be a matter of a systematic culture within a university that professors know they may not treat students uh, according to standards that are irrelevant to the evaluation of the quality of the work. The departments know they may not assess tenure candidates on criteria that are irrelevant to the quality of the work. Uh, it, it will often be hard to prove a violation. There are nonetheless a shocking number of violations that are actually demonstrable, um, and that's why we have CAUT and AAUP and MAUT and so on, uh, because people do leave paper trails. But, but in the first instance, it has to be a, a shared cultural commitment to understanding what is and what isn't appropriate for the evaluation of everybody's work within a setting like this. Eric, yeah. Um, my sense is that the rule should be the same for everyone. I mean, I don't think that we should have different standards for graduate students than we do for tenure faculty. And um, to me, tenure is not just a recognition of academic freedom. It's more like a recognition that someone has done something that merits the status, that, 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 yeah, that, that this person deserved the status. So merit is kind of a, uh, an important thing in, in universities. And that's why I'm saying that academic freedom should not be absolute. I think that you know, it should apply especially to uh, ideas that have merit. Now, I have like a very broad, I want to reassure you here, like I have a very broad definition of what a meritous idea is. And, and perhaps to come back to the question of Danielle, um, I mean, I'm just talking about like outrageous cases in which I think it would be legitimate for the, uh, the, uh, the administration to say something. I mean, not about ideas that are controversial or just like outrageous stuff. So, I mean, it shouldn't happen very often, to be frank. Uh, if it does, then it, it would be uh, a little scary, I think. But, uh, but again, I think it should be the same rule for everyone. And, okay. um, and policing is not necessary in this case. Again, it's outrageous, outrageous things on which university administration should intervene and it should be kind of obvious when it, uh, when it happens. I'm just going to pass. Is that a hand up? Yeah, okay. Could you ask your question quickly? I want to leave five minutes for the panelists to uh, give a few uh, closing comments, observations. Uh, sure, absolutely. Um, my name is Angus Bertrand. I'm a PhD student here at McGill. Uh, my question is, uh, on a bit of a tangent to the, the, the bulk of the conversation so far and something that, that concerns probably a lot of the, the students in the room but also the professors and it regards sort of academic freedom in the classroom. We've been primarily talking about academic freedom in terms of publications, in terms of op-eds and, and I think 
the, the last five years in Canada have seen a couple instances of in-classroom academic freedom. Uh, I think the Flanagan case in particular, but I think uh, this has at least swirled around Peterson and Toronto as well. And I'm just curious about this sort of older uh, issue that has been pervasive for a long time about academic freedom in the context of teaching undergraduates and graduate students, uh, and in particular for the graduate students in the room, conducting conferences and teaching ourselves and how to how to manage academic freedom in that context. Just someone, want, did you want to come in on that, Jacob? Uh, just or Andre, Marc Andre. Yeah. Just like a quick, uh, I'm a director of graduate studies at my university. And um, I guess the unofficial policy is that hate speech is unacceptable in any context in the, in the classroom. Uh, uh, and any comment that is directed like, to actually arm someone else is absolutely not acceptable. But then the discussion can sometimes turn into topics that are difficult. If you teach about terrorism, for example, or, uh, or uh, gender, and things. So, so it is sometimes difficult to manage a class. But the hope is that uh, as a department you offer a culture where there's openness and uh, there's dialogue. I think that's, the, that's a good option. I know there is some pressure coming sometimes from graduate students to, to forbid discussions about certain topics. It happened in our department in the past. I think it's important to fight that, but to make sure at the same, at the same, at the same time that um, when students are in class that they're comfortable with what's going on. It's a very difficult uh, balance. But I think um, in that sense, you just need broad rules and a good department culture to avoid any, any, any trouble. This is what I would say. Yeah, quick. I just think, and, and if you're thinking about it from being in the teaching role, I know there's debate among faculty about whether or not they should have their opinions expressed in the classroom or not, and I don't think that's something that will resolve here. But I think going into a classroom, what's important is you make sure everybody is comfortable trying to debate different ideas. And so creating an environment where the faculty, whether they've expressed an opinion or not on something, knows that counter opinions are welcome. Granted that you bring up arguments and, and evidence, whatever the norms are in your, your environment. So if we're trying to create the culture Marc-Andre is talking about as a, somebody who's teaching in front of a classroom, I think that's the way you do it. You make sure that everybody comes to the table being able to bring something there. Okay, thank you. Um, it's a bit rash of me to sum up, uh, but I'm going to do a little bit of, of summing up. I think it's fair to say that our panelists have somewhat differing views about the meaning and the extent of academic freedom. I do, though, see a consensus on the question of who is free. Uh, there's no interest in drawing um, distinctions, putting people into classes simply because uh, some have tenure or are on a tenure track and others are adjuncts and others are heading research centers and so on. I think, I think people seem to be generally agreed on that. A point that uh, Marc-Andre made um, that I, I sort of l let you uh, address it in your concluding remarks if you would be good enough to do so. He said at one point, um, Perhaps what's important is that in their extramural interventions, um, academics and other people in universities should stick to what they know. Um, do you agree with that? And feel free to offer any other observations. Are we going to go last first? <laughs> <laughs> yes, yes, that's a, that's a good. Let's do it that way. So, Eric, go ahead. 
what we know. Oops. Is it done? Yeah, I think we should stick to what we know. I mean, again, it's the credibility of the institution. Again, I think that our intervention in the public especially, but it's also true, of course, in the classroom, is that we should like add some value to what's already there. And if we don't stick to what we know, we're not adding anything, in my sense, anyway. But, but perhaps that uh, I'd like to come back to one point that, uh, that Jacob has made. Um, and it's about it's this idea that, uh, that the distinction between an administrative position and professorship is kind of a new thing given current events. And, uh, and that's not true. That's simply not true. I can give you instances of, uh, of where it was very clear that uh, you know, issues on which our institutions, universities at a stake where it was very clear that chairs and directors were not free to say just anything about the issue. I mean, there are several instances that exist and that, uh, that, that dates back to a long time and that, uh, that does not apply only to, to McGill. Um, of course, if I was to write an op-ed on uh, policy making in France and, and submit this to my dean for authorization, the dean would say, what the hell are you doing? Like, wh why showing this to me? Uh, but then I guess the dean would also say, why do you sign as a chair? I mean, what's relevant here is your job as a researcher, as a professor. So sign as a professor and you won't have any problem. And that's exactly what I would do in a case like this. Uh, I just, if, if we are researchers and we intervene as researchers and as professors, we should sign as professors. And if, you know, there is some kind of an institutional issue on which we, we want to intervene, we can, of course, sign as chair. Uh, but then we have to, you know, get some authorization. I think that would be just normal. Good point. Uh, uh, I remember my alphabet here. Uh, it's um, Jacob's turn. Over and over again, I think we want to distinguish between the procedural and jurisdictional rules of academic freedom and norms of good practice. Uh, and it hurts our ability to talk about norms of good practice that every time someone is criticized, it is taken as if it legitimates an intervention uh, in an institutional way. Uh, so with respect to the professor's academic freedom in the classroom, freedom of instruction, and professors do have academic freedom in the classroom as well as students, uh, there are best practices. There's being a good teacher. There's being a respectful teacher. There's being a polite teacher. There's appropriately encouraging and cultivating an environment of discourse. And we care about those things, and we absolutely should care about those things. Those are different from the question of the institutional constraints. By and large, if a professor is teaching on the subject matter that is within the departments and the disciplines understanding of what there needs to be a class about, and they're teaching material that relevantly passes disciplinary muster, uh, the professor has substantial self-governance over the content of lectures, the content of reading, and rightly so. Um, with respect to op-eds and public interventions, best practice, good behavior, has a very clear attention to the responsible tether between one's area of scholarly expertise and how far out on a limb one goes. But we distinguish between that standard that we use to criticize and evaluate each other horizontally and our vertical accountability to and susceptibility to discipline and reprisal
by the institution. Um, and much the same is going to apply to choices of research topics as well. Um, we can freelance, we can be casual, we can pick whatever idiosyncratic thing we want to chase down for years at a time, particularly the tenured among us. We can chase down very strange rabbit holes. <laughs> and yet, and yet we have opinions about each other and we evaluate each other, and rightly so. Um, but academic freedom protects the freedom to chase down funny rabbit holes for years at a time. Um, finally, inviting outside speakers. It seems to me that we have a massive conflation right now in both Canada and the US between the freedom of speakers to speak and responsible behavior about who is invited. Uh, once a speaker is invited, they must be allowed to speak. Once they're on campus, that event must be able to go forward. Inviting units really need to break themselves with the habit of inviting people who are fun, interesting, firebrand, controversialists, the purpose of whom is to invite protest and is to uh, inflame passions. The purpose of having outside speakers on a university campus is to promote the educational mission of the university. It is not to grab headlines. And so we criticize each other. We criticize student clubs, we criticize other departments for their bad judgment in who it is they choose to invite, while still saying, once they have brought a guest to campus, the university has a responsibility to protect their ability to have the event that they have chosen go forward. Thank you for bringing that in. Uh, Allison. So I'm going to repeat a little bit of what Jacob said to answer Leslie's question about whether we should stick to what we know um, or not. I think yes, if we want to be positively evaluated by our peers. And so there's the evaluation question. And I think absolutely we should be criticizing colleagues who aren't making meaningful contributions in the media or in research. Um, but know if it's a question of institutional discipline. So I, I don't think the, the institution as such should be really concerned about whether or not we're making, uh, we're participating in public discourse in a way that they approve of or is tightly tied to our research interests. And I want to, to come back to the issue about um, status that several people have brought up, um, and you, you did as well as in your closing remarks. I, I absolutely agree that um, academic freedom should apply across the board to academics and people in various status. I think what it's important, what's important to remember is that not everyone feels safe in using that academic freedom who are in positions that are, are less um, secure than the position of tenure. And so we have to be really aware of that to make sure that we go above and beyond to make sure those people who aren't protected by the institutions of tenure um, feel like they can actually be creative and explore questions that might be controversial. That's a very good point. Uh, thank you. Uh, Marc-Andre. Um, first, um, I want to say that analogies are quite dangerous. So thank you, uh, Daniel, for uh, pointing out. I think uh, mine was uh, not very efficient. I'll think of something else in the future. So thank you very much. <laughs> um, and my, the second point, uh, I think uh, good norms are better than good rules. And the best protection for academic freedom is uh, if we as a collectivity are quite sensitive about this and have uh, strong reactions when academic freedom is, at, is attacked in an unfair way. So in that sense, we can have all the rules we want. It is important that, it, that academic freedom remains an important uh, value uh, in our work. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, I'll just, just make a small comment on that. I think, I think there's 
quite a general sense of agreement that um, norms and culture and self-policing uh, are quite important in all this. Uh, and uh, I think that as, as interventions perhaps go somewhat farther away from simply communicating research findings in a, in a fairly straightforward way, uh, that that becomes even more important because people are people are venturing beyond just a kind of transmission of information uh, mission, and um, they should be. I mean, a good op-ed or a good blog is not simply uh, 25 facts with a, a one-sentence conclusion. That's not very interesting. Uh, the opposite extreme isn't very interesting either. Uh, but uh, we'll leave it there. We've gone a little bit over time. Um, thank you for your, your questions and comments, uh, uh, and particularly to the panelists, uh, some very um, thoughtful interventions. And thank you on behalf of Dietland and her colleagues for giving up your time um, on this beautiful afternoon. I would like just to say a few words of thank you as well. I first want to thank the staff of the Center for the Study of Democratic Citizenship for organizing this event or for helping to organize this event. Uh, I want to thank particularly the panelists and you, Leslie, uh, for moderating and for you for participating in this event. We have also a little a gift for you. The, the point was to invite people who disagree with each other on this issue, and I think this mission is accomplished. And I think we are all a little smarter after this uh, deliberation. So thank you. Thank you for coming out. And we'll talk more about this in the future, I'm sure.